You guys would turn with me to um, Luke 17, starting in verse 1. Sorry, in verse 1, Luke 17, it says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a uh, millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should um, cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will anyone of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, Um, When he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we are unworthy servants. Lord, we are not worthy of you. God, I pray that our, our proud hearts don't get in the way of the knowledge that all our gratitude goes to you. Not the other way around. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we go through this passage today that you just talk to to our hearts. Lord, I pray, even through tough trials, Lord, even through grieving, Lord, we have a deep-rooted joy and thanks because we know you are good. God, help us put our trust in you. Be with us this morning. Amen. Brent, um, Pastor Brent, a few weeks ago asked me if I would do uh, part of the uh, a sermon on gratitude in this three-week um, sermon series on Thanksgiving. And uh, before I get started uh, this morning, I just want to say, um, as I was going through Thanksgiving, that I was thinking, I am thankful for this church. Um, it, it, we've been here uh, like my whole life, but I've been working here uh, for the last around six years, starting off as an intern then working part-time and now uh, full-time. And um, I know our whole family is thankful for this church, but I just want to say this church feels like family, and I am thankful for you guys. And I think it's appropriate um, as we uh, uh, celebrate this morning uh, for me to say that. But two weeks ago, Brent started this sermon um, series preaching on our vertical gratitude, our thankfulness towards God using Romans 1. Last week, uh, he preached on our horizontal gratitude, our thankfulness to man, which we found out is really thankfulness to God for men and our brothers. And after uh, um, uh, Brent was done with this, uh, Craig came up to me this week and says, hey, what are you going to preach on? Uh, Seems like Brent has covered everything. So I told him that was a good question. So I did the same thing Pastor Brent did. I looked through my, my books to try to find a book on gratitude, and I couldn't find one. 
Um, so I started looking through my books to see if I can find something on gratitude. And I found a book that had uh, a chapter on gratitude, and it used Luke 17 um, to, to talk about being grateful. So I decided I would study Luke 17, and this is what I learned. True faith always produces gratitude. True faith always produces gratitude because it's faith in God being the great giver and man being the great getter or receiver. John Piper says, and he's known for saying, that the giver always gets glory. As Christmas comes around and and we give gifts, the giver always gets glory in gratitude. The getter always gets joy the joy of the gift. And so I want to explore this this morning. First, let's grab the context of this this passage that we're going through. Um, Starting in verse 1, Jesus is, as I read through this earlier, has three passages that don't sound like they go together, but they do. And let's see see how they do, starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and um, he were cast into the sea than that he should um, cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. These are, these are two imperatives, two hard commands. We've spent some time on these, these commands recently. To rebuke a brother and to forgive a brother are hard things to do. And verse 4 says, And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We learned that this is not a number. This is hyperbolic language, meaning forgive as many times as necessary. Jesus is saying, no matter how many times your brother sins against you, you must forgive him. Even if it's seven times a day, even if it's more. A side note, as we were going through this with Pastor Brent and as I was studying this, I realized that this is a reflection of God's mercy. When we forgive like this, we are modeling God, meaning God is this forgiving. But as Christians, we're we're called to model this. We're called to forgive. And the apostles understood that this is going to be extremely hard. That's why in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. We need more faith to forgive like this. Look at Jesus' response in verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What Jesus is saying is you don't need more faith. What you need is the right kind of faith. The right kind of faith, even if it's small, is powerful because it's faith in God's power. Today, um, we have all types of crazy ideas about faith. In the secular world, faith is considered an irrational belief or belief in something like fairy tales or fables or unicorns. Um, this is a wrong idea of faith. This is the wrong faith. We have a, a reasonable faith. Many in the, the charismatic movement have a wrong idea about faith. It's almost as if they believe if you concentrate hard enough, you can do anything. 
where you can get God to do anything. It almost becomes some kind of work hidden under the name of faith. Let me give you an example. Not my master's degree, but my undergrad degree. I went to a charismatic college and uh, one of the local churches, the charismatic church, a man got in a car accident and he was, he was in a coma. And the church told his wife that it was her fault her husband was still in the coma because she didn't have enough faith that God couldn't, could heal him. This is the wrong idea of faith. True faith humbly trusts God when he heals and when he doesn't heal. This type of faith says, I owe you everything. You owe me nothing, yet you are good to me. Therefore, I rejoice in gratitude. It's faith in God being the great giver, deserving the glory, honor, and thanks, and man being the great getters, receiving grace, which is a free gift. True, saving, powerful faith produces gratitude. And I have one parable to illustrate this truth. Originally, this was a three-part sermon, but we had a baby dedication, um, Lord's Supper, ordination, and so I made it one part. The grateful attitude of the unworthy servant. And just so you guys know, if you go home tonight and after the sermon, if you read the next passage, it goes right with what we're going over today. Originally, that was the passage I was studying, and it just I, there's not enough time to get there. So we're going to stick with this one parable, the grateful attitude of the unworthy servant. I want you to see, as we go through this parable, godly faith producing gratitude, because God is the great giver, deserving honor and glory, and we are the great getters producing joy and gratitude. So verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant... Let's stop right there. Servant. This word servant is doulos in the Greek. It's, it's bond servant or slave. It should be translated slave. One-fifth of the Roman population in this time were slaves. And this could be a very rough life. But, depending on the master, it could also be a secure life. This was rough times in a lot of ways, and often slavery was a lot better than day laborers who were looking for work each day. And if they didn't get work, they didn't get money, and they don't have money, you don't get money for food. A lot of times these slaves were, were, were better off than the day laborers. It all depended on the master. Verse 7, let's look at it again. And any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? This is a rhetorical question by Jesus. The answer is no. The servant didn't do anything special. Just what was expected, plowing or keeping sheep. Instead, look at verse 8. He will not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Again, this is a rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. This is a job of a slave. After plowing, he was expected to come in and make dinner. The assumption is this is a reasonable workload. It's what was expected. In today's terms, it would be something like 
you got paid for an eight-hour day and only worked five of those eight hours, would you think your boss owed you something? No. Jesus keeps going. Does he, the master, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Does the master thank the slave? This is a rhetorical question. No. He was doing his duty. What was expected, in a sense, is what he was paid to do. There was no special honor. And so Jesus gets to the point of the parable in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Here's the point. The humble heart, after doing everything God has commanded, says, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The humble heart says, God, you owe me nothing. Therefore, you get all the gratitude. You get all the glory. On the other hand, the proud, self-righteous heart says, God, you owe me. Because I'm a good person. You guys could turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And go through another parable really quick. It should be just a page over. Starting in verse 9, he also told this parable to someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is a definition of a self-righteous person. Trusted in themselves for good works, not, not for God's righteousness, but within themselves. And Jesus tells this parable about this self-righteous man. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I get. This is the attitude of a, uh, um, of a self-righteous person. They think they're better than others because of what they, they have done. What he's really saying, he knows better than to say, God, you should thank me, but this is what he's saying. And it would fit. God, you should thank me that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe to all that I get. God, I am the gift to you. You should be thanking me. You should be glorifying me. This is the proud, self-righteous heart. But, verse 13, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector is saying, I have nothing to give you. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So look back at Luke 17.10 again. So you also, when you have done all that um, you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In other words, we have done nothing to make us worthy. 
unworthy, this word in Greek, uh, could be translated useless or unprofitable. And here's my question. Can you profit God? What can you give to God that he would be wealthier because you gave it to him? Nothing. Nothing. Paul makes this very clear in Acts 17.24. Don't turn there, just listen. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, Paul's saying this is a big God. This is a God that spoke everything into existence. This God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives, key word, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the great giver. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything, and we men are the great getters. This is the common grace level. This is every human being that's ever lived has been given breath and life. I say this a lot to the high schoolers. No one says, I want to be born. I'm going to make myself. I'd like to be born in America in 1983. I was thinking about this. I can't even make my own heartbeat. I have no control over it. Every beat is a gift. Man is a hundred percent dependent on God. Therefore, man should be thankful. The one book I found was written by Jerry Bridges, and he writes this. Thanksgiving is an omission of dependence. Through it, we recognize that in the physical realm, God gives us life and breath and everything else, Acts 17.25. And that in the spiritual realm, it is God who made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Everything we are and have, we owe to God's abundant grace. For what do you have that you did not receive? First Corinthians, or First Corinthians 4, 7. For what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. God is the great giver. Therefore, he deserves glory and thanks. We are the great getters. We get joy. The joy of life, the joy of salvation. You can't give anything to God that would profit him. He needs nothing and he owns everything. We are unprofitable servants. In seminary, there's a lot of different times it's just reflecting on what I was learning that just kind of blew me away. But there's one one thing in, in systematic theology I was saying, we was actually talking about the Trinity. And there's one doctrine that just kind of blew me, it just blew me away. God is completely self-sufficient, which means God needs nothing. And I was I was meditating on this. And realizing God needs absolutely nothing, it hit me. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. 
A.W. Tozer, in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this, to admit the existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relationship to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creation arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need the creation can supply, nor from any completeness it can bring to him. Here's the point. God does not need you. He does not need your money. He does not need your obedience. He does not need your talents. He doesn't even need your company. I hear this all the time, that God made mankind because he was lonely. He was not lonely. He had perfect relationship from eternity past in the Trinity. God does not need your wise counsel and prayer. God doesn't even need your evangelistic efforts. And I can focus on any one of these things, but I want to focus on evangelism because I think that's where we, we, we think God needs us the most. He doesn't need us in evangelism. This is what A.W. Tozer keeps writing on the self-sufficiency of God. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God today, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinions of ourselves that we find it quite easy not to say enjoyable to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is no greater from our being, nor would he be lesser if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination, not by divine necessity. Tozer's point, God does not need us. He keeps going. Probably the hardest thought of all for our um, natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need us for help. We commonly characterize him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his compassionate plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But the God who worketh all things together surely needs no help and no helpers. Too many missionary appeals are based upon the supposed frustration of God Almighty. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but also for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear, I fear that thousands of younger persons enter into Christian ministry from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into. Let me be clear. This supposed frustrated God of popular Christianity is not the God of the Bible. The almighty, powerful, sovereign God of the Bible does not need you, and he does not need me. All of the dependence goes from man to God, and not the other way around. Therefore, all the gratitude should go to God.
then I, this question needs to be asked then. And it's a good question. And I hear this question all the time. Why evangelize if God doesn't need us to? What's the point? I hear this all the time. Why evangelize if man is chosen? If man is elected? If man is predestined? These are all biblical words celebrated in the Bible. If God is sovereign over salvation, meaning 100% of the credit goes to God, why evangelize? I'm going to answer this by looking at a familiar story. Turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. This is salvation of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devoted man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. This word, God-fearer, is a word that's used for Gentiles, non-Jewish men, Gentiles, that believed in the Old Testament, didn't know Jesus, was not saved, yet he had a seeking heart. With a little truth that he had, he feared God, gave generously, and prayed continually. So, verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly, now take note of that, saw Clearly, in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. The angel in a clear vision, clearly speaking to him, said, go find Peter. Why? You know the story. It's because Peter is going to come and share the gospel. Go find Peter. Peter will share the gospel to you. Here's my question. Couldn't the angel have just shared the gospel with Cornelius? Yes, he could have. Did God need Peter to come share the gospel? No. God can do anything. He could use angels to share the gospel with every single person on this earth. Reach every unreached people group by sending an angel to them. He could write the gospel message in the sky so everyone could see it in their own language simultaneously. God himself could visit every single person and share the gospel with them then why use Peter? We've got to get to the end of the story to, to, to see. What we're skipping, turn to Acts uh, 10, verse 44. What we're skipping is, is a lot, but Peter, Cornelius sends men to get Peter. Peter has a vision saying go pretty much and share the gospel with Cornelius. He figures it out eventually. Um, Peter comes with his people and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. 
This is where we're picking it up. While Peter was still saying these things, meaning he was sh- sharing the gospel, that's the things he was sharing or er, 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 saying. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from, um, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Here's the point. God didn't need Peter to share the gospel. God wanted Peter to share the gospel. I can think of at least three reasons. There's probably thousands of reasons. One, to build up the church. And if you're familiar with this part of Acts, this was extremely important for the history of the church. Two, to grow Peter's faith, to grow him to be more like Christ. But three, for Peter's joy. For Peter's joy. Peter got to be the messenger of good news. Look at verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Peter and his friends, amazed. This is awesome. Can you believe what God is doing? And then verse 48. They remained for some days. Doing what? My guest rejoicing together with his Gentile. Praising God, thanking God for his salvation. God is the great giver, gives Peter the opportunity to evangelize. Peter was the great getter. Peter got the joy of bringing the good news. The great giver gets the glory, the thanks, the gratitude. The getter gets the joy. God gets the glory. Peter got the joy. This is exactly what Isaiah 52, 7 is saying. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It is a privilege to evangelize, to bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God doesn't need us to evangelize. We get to evangelize. And this is true with all those other things that I was saying God doesn't need us to do. As a side note, I have the privilege of being on the uh, board for the missionaries, the missionary board. And this is the attitude of every missionary I've met that we support. We get to be missionaries. Emily and Jimmy, Austin and Heather, Chris and Kelly, all of them would say missionary work is hard. It is hard. But missionary work is a privilege and a joy. True faith knows that we owe God everything and he owes us nothing. This is the gospel. God is good to us when we don't deserve it. This is also the grateful attitude of an unworthy servant. I owe God everything, 
And everything I have is a gift from God. Everything. Therefore, we are unworthy, unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty. I have nothing to offer. You are the great giver. Therefore, I am thankful. True, saving, powerful faith always produces gratitude. Always produces gratitude. I'm going to end with a quote from John Piper. And if anyone knows John Piper, you know he teaches more about joy than anyone else probably out there. And this is what he says. What can I give my maker? If he were hungry, he would not tell me. For the world and all that is in it is his. The birds of the air, the bugs in the field, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Psalms fifty ten through 12. Everything that is, is God's. I cannot improve him. I cannot enrich or add to him. I am utterly and inescapably and always the receiver. He is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. And here's the question. How then shall I live for him? How shall I please him? The answer to this question stands written in the lesson book of creation and mirrored in our own conscience. According to Romans 1, I must thank him. I must thank him. Everything we do must be motivated out of gratitude for him. Psalms 50, 23 says, He who brings thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies God. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, the great giver, help us have grateful hearts. Help us see life as a privilege that you have given us, as a gift that you have given us. Help us not complain, Lord. Lord, I know hard things happen in life. I know there's times of grieving. I know life is not easy. But help us be grateful for everything we have. God, help us be joyous in the grace that you have given us. Common grace, breath, life, food, rain, a country that that governs, that won't let people abuse us. In particular, grace, saving grace. Grace that has kept us from spending eternity in hell. It's a free gift. We didn't earn it. Anything. We didn't earn anything. God, help us to, to respond with grateful attitudes. You sent your son. You give his, gave his life as a gift. God, help us reflect on that when times get hard. God, I thank you. Pray that you're with us. Help us be a grateful church.
Help us be a church that this community goes, what is different about them? Everyone from that church is, just has such a grateful attitude, such a joyous attitude. I want whatever they have. God, I pray that you help us get to that place. Amen.